Thank you for joining me today. This is Colin Hamilton, Commodities Analyst at BMO Capital Markets. And welcome to our short Metals Matters podcast where we highlight the key things you need to know in global metals and mining this week. Welcome to a special edition of Metal Matters. I have a guest with me this time around. I've got Alex Pierce, who uh, covers the global diversifies, the international metals and mining, and of course, the uranium stocks here at BMO from an equity perspective. And we're going to be taking a little while to talk through some of the key outcomes from a recent report we published called You Kids on the Block. It is a detailed review of uranium market dynamics. The basic reason for this report, well, certainly the timing of it, is that next week in London, we have the World Nuclear Symposium hosted by the World Nuclear Association. Um, Alex, why don't you tell us why uh, this event is so important? Great. Thanks, Colin. Yeah, so uh, the World Nuclear uh, Association is obviously um, a huge organisation that kind of represents the whole fuel cycle for the nuclear industry. And the World Nuclear Symposium, which kicks off next week, is kind of the key calendar event for the industry. So this year is particularly important as the WNA will also be publishing its biennial nuclear fuel report. Um, That gives a number of insights into what is otherwise a fairly opaque market of particular interest to us is the demand outlook for the sector. And it really gives a feel how sentiment is within the industry. And just kind of versus the report that came out a couple of years ago, we think actually this this is likely to have projections are higher overall than the last report in 2021. We also get global estimates of inventories held by utilities. This is really important because not all of this data is actually available in the wider market. So the WNA compiles unattributed utility held inventories by region and you know when we look into that data we would expect that the inventories are likely down on the the last time this report came out but also we get a look at some of those kind of fuel cycle um, parts which are really difficult to pin down like enrichment projections for example so you know this will give us a sense of whether or not we're we're moving to overfeeding in the market in response to um, some anti-russian sentiment and, and that can have quite a large impact to U308 demand, particularly near term. Thank you, Alex. So I'm just going to run through for uh, a minute or so. What, what's special about the uranium market? What makes it different? And, and really, the first thing here is demand certainty. I, I call uranium an upside-down commodity market in that we get good visibility on demand. That's really unusual. Normally, in, in commodity markets, we're scrambling around chasing demand and, and trying to make some guesses. But because it takes so long to build a nuclear reactor, we have a bit of demand certainty. So that's the first thing. Second thing, I, I love I love to use the phrase commodity markets always self-solve. There are always exceptions to that rule, and, and uranium has been one. Um, in, the, in the post-2011 period, post-Fukushima, well, we saw inventories build consistently for the best part of 10 years. And we didn't get the supply adjustment needed. And that's because uranium is, I mean, highly storable in, in yellow cake form. But it did mean that we had to do more work to solve that market post that point. Um, it's also one of the few markets that has consistently traded below our long-term forecast. We basically haven't really been at a price level to incentivize much new supply for much of the past decade. And indeed, we've been trading at levels over much of that time to try and force some supply off the market. Another point, might talk about this a bit more later, is that China is not yet the largest buyer of uranium. And it is not the marginal price setter. China is a core buyer of uranium, and we'd actually view things like US utilities 
as more than marginal buyers. They are the ones we care about when it looks to setting the uranium price. And and last thing I'd say, well, uranium's been a big beneficiary of everything that's gone on in the world from a energy security perspective, from a geopolitical perspective, from a carbon perspective over the past couple of years. And I suppose it's a good segue to you, Alex, to talk about maybe what we're seeing in terms of nuclear fuel policy and general market sentiment. Yeah, I think that's the, the key really for the uranium um, industry as a whole. Those, the last few years particularly have really seen the increasingly positive changing in, in attitudes uh, towards nuclear power, especially from an ESG standpoint. Um, you know, we've seen many countries targeting lower uh, CO2 outputs in the in the longer term. And I think particularly if you've got an existing nuclear fleet, they're seen as a very strong tool to help support. So as an example, you know, last year you saw um, nuclear included in the EU taxonomy for the first time, as well as other supportive government level policies such as the, um, the US IRA. You know, whilst we probably wouldn't say that nuclear is universally accepted as fully ESG, I think this kind of support of the government level really has meant investment in the space has become significantly easier. And, and that with that probably means that there's better access to, to capital that may have been off limits before. And then you mentioned um, the, the Russian kind of conflict with Ukraine and security of supply, especially with the, the kind of recent uh, instability in uh, Niger. But I think one of the be- main benefits for nuclear really is for utilities' ability to store many years' worth of fuel on site. And I think in the past, this has been seen as kind of detrimental. We've seen excess inventories in the market, but perhaps now you know we're seeing this as actually a bit of a strength for utilities, given kind of diversification and, and risk management. So I think with that, you know, we, we've seen contracting discussions from utilities uh, looking to diversify supply, particularly from safer jurisdictions such as Canada, and that helps manage overall portfolio risk. And, and we think that more contracts are probably going to be announced late this year and into, into next year. And then I think probably one of the kind of biggest changes is actually just from the public viewpoint. I think you know, nuclear support really is gaining momentum. And, and if you just look at a number of recent polls, um, including probably most surprisingly one in Japan, where actually you know, the, there's a majority of, of those surveys were actually in favor of restarting the Japanese nuclear fleet which is the first time since uh, Fukushima. Thank you, Ali. So I suppose a question on the back of that is, is what it means for um, demand. Now, it is one of those markets. Demand doesn't suddenly change overnight. Utilities, as Alex mentioned, can hold a lot of inventory for a long time. But we're going from a situation where those utilities were thinking, well, maybe we'll use a little bit less uranium over time to one where actually we might see a little bit more. The spot market, it is relatively small uh, in uranium but it is quite important it's important to uh, look at market dynamics i think this is where we've seen really one of the big changes if we look at spot market buying back in 2021 it's actually mainly the producers trying to cover some of their contracted needs because they shut down a lot of their mine supply go to 2022 it was the financial market buyers we had uh, the entry of the financial market back into uranium uh, looking at that longer term potential. Well, this year, it's utilities that are about to purchasing. That's a much healthier situation for the market. I mean, these are the real end buyers, and they're saying, well, actually, if we are going to extend reactor lives or maybe even build out our fleet, we are looking to have to secure that supply again. And you're seeing them actually having to enter that spot market once more. And the general focus back on uh, the nuclear sector as a whole 
has and actually look towards where is the growth coming from now like a lot of other things in commodity markets and an energy transition china's leading the way here uh, we know china's targets china has targets for 70 gigawatts and 120 gigawatts potentially into the next decade of nuclear capacity now that would make china the biggest fleet in the world at that point but already we've seen a lot of stocking going on what i think is interesting we know the china targets they are in everyone's numbers but if we look at the potential for china to start building out nuclear fleet outside of domestic markets i.e exporting nuclear technology well, I think that's some potential upside to numbers. Um, we've already seen the Hualong 1 reactors put in place in Pakistan, and we've seen a number of other contracts signed. So we are looking at this being another area of where China can help the wider market grow, uh, particularly some of these um, emerging markets, which are, which are starting to face the carbon pressures that are already prevalent in developed markets, but as of yet have not had the ability to really put the capital to work. Uh, to deploy these and have therefore uh, defaulted if you want to coal well China is now starting to export nuclear power in the same way that it has been exporting coal power for the past 20 years now I think one of the most interesting things in our report was uh, small modular reactors so Alex why SMRs why now so I think Colin the the reason we've um, incorporated SMRs into our forecast really has just been because of all those points you've made so far essentially the, the kind of growing positive sentiment and increasingly positive uh, government level support means that now it's much more realistic that you can see some investment in this sector. So we think really, it really can be a massive uh, potential growth driver in the space. You know, the, the potential is via the promise of lower relative costs and likely shorter construction times due to the modular design, as well as uh, potentially kind of enhanced flexibility over the larger conventional reactors. One of the challenges we had when we were building out the forecast is that there are many, many different designs. There's more than 50 current SMRs uh, designs tabled. And so building out a demand projection isn't necessarily that easy, uh, and, and especially given some of the first of the, its kind risk associated with it. But obviously, as the number of SMRs increase, the risk should uh, diminish through time. And you know, Russia already has a, a small number of floating SMRs out there. At the minute, China is expected to finish the first land-based SMR by 2024. So we are already in the beginnings of the rollout for new grid applications. And on that basis, you know, incorporating some of those that were already in construction, we have fairly modest growth by 2030, something like six gigawatts. So it's not huge, but we think the, the most potential really is from upgrades to existing and, and retiring thermal coal power stations. So we put a lot of work into... Um, trying to quantify the potential impact that SMRs can have there, you know, where they can match existing installed power capacity for these retired thermal coal plants, as well as footprints. So the US DOE published a study last year where it, it screened all of the retired and operating coal plants in the US and determined that potentially 80% had the fundamental characteristics to be kind of amenable to retrofitting with SMRs, um, and, and also potential for some meaningful cost savings, which I think is really supportive of this idea. Now, we've kind of made some fairly heavy haircuts to that 80% uh, number there in terms of our overall uh, growth for SMRs. But essentially, by combining the new grid applications I spoke about, as well as this kind of potential growth through the thermal coal applications, 
um, total SMRs on our numbers could increase to as much as 58 gigawatts of installed capacity by 2040, and which is which would be about 9% of total nuclear capacity by then. Which is interesting because uh, SMRs, they used to be the upside in our uranium demand forecast. They weren't built into our base case, but they were something we were looking at. Now, now of course, we're starting to build them into the base case. So has that upside optionality gone? No, we've actually moved it to a slightly different area. We're looking a lot at the industrial applications of these small modular reactors. There's a number of industrial areas that need consistency of low carbon power supply and have been hurt pretty hard by volatile power prices over the past couple of years. Uh, there's three I want to highlight quickly here. Number one, steel industry, always high on the agenda when it comes to decarbonization, and it's a heavy power user, uh, particularly for electric art furnaces, therefore very exposed to power price fluctuations. So if we look at that, the stable low carbon nature of SMRs are attractive. We've seen Nucor and Nuscale Power sign a memorandum of understanding to explore co-location of small modular reactors at Nucor's electric art furnace sites in the US. That makes some inherent sense to us. Another area to highlight is data centers. So last year, data-related processes consumed around 720 terawatt hours of electricity. And if we think about a, a, a simple 5% Kager growth to that through 2030, that's another 400 gigawatt of new power installations we will need roughly the total current generation capacity of Japan. We're already starting to see existing nuclear power plants in the US supplying power direct to data centers in Connecticut. We're starting to see it in uh, Kentucky as well. So uh, this is definitely an area where there's some potential. And the last one is around maritime transportation. We've seen batteries, hydrogen, green ammonia all talked about here. But we think this is arguably one of the segments better placed in nuclear technology. Of course, we've already got nuclear submarines, so maritime operations have a bit of a head start in both technology and regulation. Of course, maybe the general public isn't going to be comfortable yet with cruise liners being nuclear powered, but bulk carriers and container ships, they're much more economically sensitive. And a recent study commissioned by the American Bureau of Shipping noted that SMRs address many of the issues that are traditionally associated with nuclear but for commercial maritime use. So there's enhanced safety and efficiency from these small modular reactors. Interestingly as well, if we look at using these reactors on a container vessel, it would increase cargo capacity, increase operational speed, and reduce refueling downtime. This is all economically beneficial to owners. So that's an area that we think is going to be important. Um, there are some other operations such as remote mines and district heating where SMRs have some potential so an area will definitely be keeping an eye on. So where does this leave market supply demand, Alex? So one thing we haven't mentioned much to this point is the supply side. Even though the uranium price has um, increased significantly year on year and we're at a level which does support a number of brownfield operations, the supply side has actually been fairly slow to respond overall. You know, the, the spot price of, as of now is around $58 a pound. Um, but the challenges of bringing back some of those idled mines really has kind of come to the fore and, and, and shown that actually you can't bring these old idled mines back as quickly as I think a lot of people expected. Um, we think the pace of the brownfield restarts should increase over the next couple of years. So we are expecting some near-term supply growth. The greenfield starts probably more likely later 
this decade, which also supports a little bit more overall supply growth by 2030. But with the overall demand picture that we've just painted, which is essentially around 3% CAGA growth out to 2030 and beyond, we actually have a, a pretty meaningful supply deficit ongoing until essentially later this decade. And this really supports our overall expectations that the uranium price has to continue to increase in this long term, really just to stimulate the production to match those demand needs. We've covered a lot of ground there, and now we'll see if the World Nuclear Symposium brings a little bit more focus to some of these topics. We'll be there, and if you are as well, then please let us know, and we can provide details of the event we are hosting. Thank you for joining us today. That was Metal Matters, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Metal Matters on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers, or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more episodes, including our other podcast series, BMO Equity Research in Tune. If you have feedback or suggestions for upcoming podcasts, please do share it with me at colin.hamilton at bimo.com. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bimocapitalmarkets.com forward slash public hyphen disclosure.